When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks. Book Riot listeners can download a free audiobook on us and get an extended free trial of the service by going to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 45, and we're recording on Friday, March 21st. I'm Jeff O'Neill, and I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're the editors of BookRiot.com. Rebecca, fresh off of her gig last night at the Copacabana, has a nice smoky voice for us this morning. It's too bad it's not Book Riot after dark. Yeah, uh, Rebecca. Or Delilah. Is, I'll put on my Delilah yeah. voice. You got it. So you got a little bit of a bug. Just a little bit, yeah. Just a little sore throat action happening. But I'm here. I'm I'm in action, and yep. uh, I'm happy that it's episode forty. I can't believe our podcast is middle-aged. I know. It's, we should uh, take it out to, to do something fun. Um, all right. Let's get into it. we got a lot of little stories this week, but a couple of good follow-ups. Um, we talked about the gender-specific book, Kerfluffle. Maybe it's r- risen to Tempest. I don't know. Um, over in the UK. Can I get a scale for reference, please? Yeah, I please? think it's, it's above a hubbub for sure. Um, but uh, below a, a full-on outbreak. It's not yet a movement. No, for sure. Well, it's interesting that it's a UK thing. It hasn't really spread this way. I don't know if it's, I don't <laughs> know. It hasn't taken hold as something that like uh, some children's publisher in America has to take a stand on. We'll see how it goes. Um, but The Independent, which is a big British um, newspaper, said they will no longer review gender-specific children's books because it is bad. Yeah, there's there's a really great quote in here that I love. Uh, What we are doing by pigeonholing children is badly letting them down. And books, above all things, should be available to any child who is interested in them. Uh, And the editor points out that it's not just girls' ambitions that are frustrated by the limiting effect of books for girls, but also um, there's this movement and a lot of discussion that I have seen uh, in American literary circles about what do we do to get books boys to read mm-hmm. uh like it seems to be quite a challenge to get boys to read and and this editor is saying that these books that are published exclusively for the purpose of getting boys to read uh, that have all male characters and thin action-based plots are just as limiting mm-hmm. uh, as the you know how to put glitter in your hair stuff uh, for girls is so I, I I like this. You know, when we were talking about it last week, you were pointing out that there are problems all along. Uh, yeah. There's a problem like at every link on the chain uh, in publishing and that one of the things that consumers can do is boycott uh, buying gender-specific books. But this is a great way for media to be involved. If you don't call attention to gender-specific books by reviewing them, then you do um, use your power as a gatekeeper um, in determining what you will show readers and what you won't show readers and uh, what you will and won't build awareness Mm -hmm. for. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, So, you know, we could have maybe a longer debate sometime if we wanted to about the 
responsibility or the task of a review organ and whether or not this serves it or not or whatever. But I think that's an interesting take and it's um, definitely spreading to some degree. Um, another piece of follow-up, we talked a while ago about a silent reading party mm-hmm. that was going on in a hotel in Seattle. We thought it was Chicago, but we were incorrect. It was actually Seattle. Um, basically a hotel bar in Seattle decided, hey, let's have people come and sit together and read. And enough people heard about this that, of course, as all things must inevitably do, someone decided to try it in Brooklyn. Um, And there was one last week at Much More, which is a bar in Brooklyn, and they had about 25 people show up. Nice. And they uh, are going to have another one coming They have a harpist that provided ambient music. Yeah. uh, No, I have nothing against harpists. um, But... Let me. I don't Are know. you going to poop on the silent reading party? No, I like the silent reading okay. party, but is it, doesn't that take the silent out of silent reading party? I don't know. Oh, I think it's silent as in like non-speaking. As opposed to the out loud reading party where everyone reads what they're reading simultaneously. I don't know. Anyway. I mean, as in the like non-social, like you, you yeah. can come and read quietly to yourself and... You think dead not- silence is weird. Well, I mean, I, I I guess it depends on what your preference is. Like, I I kind of like music in the background while I'm reading. Yeah, I do too. I guess I do too. I would be wearing my headphones anyway, so it doesn't plus, really matter. Yeah, like plus if you're in a, so you wouldn't have silence. You'd be wearing your headphones. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. Yeah, but like I think, it's silence that I can then choose what music I'm. Listening I think to. in a bar. Like with a lot of people, especially a little background music is good so that you can hear that instead of hearing like 25 people, you know, tapping their feet and turning pages and clicking their pins and doing all of those like non-silent twitchy gestures that people do. Right. So um, I'll put a link in the show notes to the next one, which is happening in early April. Um, And we'll see if that can uh, keep going. And if you know of one in your town, let us know and we can tell people about it. Please go. I, I, I would love to. Like, I might try to go to one of these in Brooklyn. So look right at people, yeah. infiltrate silent reading party. Yeah, and like just like stare at people. <laughs> Maybe we'll do a new issue of our Read Harder t shirts and it'll say Read Quieter. Read Quieter. That's pretty <laughs> funny. I like that. Uh, anyway, uh, okay. Sponsor. Hear, yeah, we've got a new oh, sponsor we're excited about this, this week. Man, we are so excited because we've been talking about them for free for months now. <laughs> yeah, I know. And finally, cashing uh, in. Oyster is our uh, first sponsor this week. You can check them out at oysterbooks.com slash bookriot. Oyster provides unlimited ebooks to you for a $9.95 a month subscription model. They were the first uh, unlimited ebook subscription model to go to market with a big five publisher on board. Uh, that's HarperCollins with the awesome uh, chief digital officer that we've talked about and given shout outs to many times before. Uh, but Oyster is a library at your fingertips. They're uh, creating a better way to read by giving members unlimited and instant access to an ever-growing library of books. Uh, Right now, there are over 100,000 titles. They're adding more every day. And there's everything from bestsellers to classics, science fiction, biographies, YA, romance, like you name it, it's there. Uh, In addition to HarperCollins, They've got stuff from hundreds of publishers that range from uh, small publishers, independent publishers, to self-publishing aggregators. There are Houghton Mifflin titles, Rodale, Melville House, Other Press, uh, Smashwords, Perseus, all kinds. Uh, right now, Oyster is available only on iOS devices. Um, I know you and I both read on our, we use it on our iPhones and iPads. Uh, you can use it on your iPod Touch, but Oyster for Android is coming later this year. Uh, it's a really beautifully and thoughtfully designed 
reading app for mobile devices. Uh, they spared no detail and it really shows. Um, and I know when they rolled out in the fall, you and I both felt sort of instantly like yeah, just this a is the thing. UI. It's great. It's just looks you very hard to, to pick apart any, any problems with the actual reading experience for sure. Yeah. You can download the app and get a free 30 day trial. Again, it's oysterbooks.com slash book riot. Uh, they have great in-app discovery and search, uh, but also their editorial sets of like related and themed titles and personalized recommendations. And you can follow your friends and see what they've been reading, um, and rate books on your own and keep those private if you wish. Um, I have nothing but great things to say about Oyster. I really love it. And if you are going to try it out through oysterbooks.com slash book riot, um, I have a recommendation. You do? I do. Well, I have a couple. I mean, I yeah. have a million because I, I have been reading Oyster for a while. But since we do recommendations for audiobooks, I thought sure. I would mm -hmm. toss some out here. Uh, right now, I'm reading The Canon by Natalie Angier. Canon like literary canon, not like a Civil War cannonball just canon. Like a, like, a, like, a, like a gun that sh just shoots uh, novellas at people. Right. Yes, that would be delightful. Uh, and it is a whirligig tour of the basics of science. She's a 25, 30 or 30 year veteran of uh, science writing. And the premise is uh, that adults should tap back into that wonder and awe that we feel when we're kids at how the world works. Uh, like when you walk, when you're five and you walk through a museum and you look at the dinosaur skeleton and it's just like yeah. the coolest thing ever. Uh, or you, you first really learn and grasp some scientific concept. Um, Natalie Angier is not pleased that science sort of gets relegated to the realm of the nerdy um, and difficult to understand as we grow up. And so she wants to bring the excitement back to it. And uh, the book is about what are the things that a non-scientist needs to understand about science to be conversant and like to not come off as an idiot in a conversation with a scientist at a cocktail party. Nice. <laughs> it's really interesting and fun. Um, and, you know, there are thousands of other choices that you have if you try out Oyster. But uh, for nonfiction, that's one that I'm really enjoying right now. Yeah, I was... Um poking through the Oyster catalog last night because you and I are working on another thing we're doing for a sponsorship for the Oyster, putting together sort of a list of things that we could find on Oyster if someone wanted to get started and pick it up and have some things mm -hmm. right away that, you know, if they make the mistake of trusting us that they could look at this. And I, number one on my list, and I read it this summer, this summer, nine months ago, I guess it would be now, oh, when I was catching yeah. up on a bunch of uh, stuff that I'd kind of just missed over time. And I read The Giver by Lois Lowry, and it's on Oyster, and the trailer for the movie just came out, which I guess we don't have in the show notes, but we could talk about a little we bit can. too. Um, which is the original gangster of YA dystopia, as far as I can tell, and it's it's really good. I, I wasn't sure what to expect. It has a much lighter touch than the YA dystopia we've become accustomed to now. Mm -hmm. um, much, It's much slower, and I think to its credit, it reads much more like more literary fiction dystopia, somewhere more in the line of, say, 1984. Yeah, it's like lit fic for 12-year-olds. Yeah, with the dystopian thing put in. Mm -hmm. And and it has a really beautiful reveal, and, I, and I'm not going to spoil it, um, I don't even know to talk about without spoiling it. That, it, that one of the one of the more memorable reading moments is when you learn something about the main character, um, that that and the way he sees the, the way world. he sees the world. That's that's really great. Um, so that was that's one you can catch up on if you've missed it. And I guess one thing we should just say about Oyster that 
you and I didn't really anticipate when we started, even when we were pining for this kind of subscription, all you can eat, you book service, is that the freedom to abandon a book oh, it's is so, great. so liberating. Um, I am a habitual book buyer. I don't do much library thing, library usage, uh, much to my detriment, I, I think, but it's just who I am. And so if I pick up something that I've bought, I will almost always, like 99.9% .9 of the time, finish it because I've invested money and blah, blah, blah. Well, here, if you read 25 pages of something, you just move on to the next if you don't like it. It's I, I love that, too. My other favorite Oyster feature that I hadn't I just hadn't thought about because I had not been reading across devices before is that it syncs mm -hmm. across all of your devices. So um, you can, you know, read in bed on your iPad and then pick up your phone while you're waiting for the class at the gym to start the next day and be in the same spot on Oyster in the book that you were reading, which yeah. I, that to me feels like the future. That, that's very nice because if you're going to sit down for a while in the evening, most of us who do iPhones and tablets will prefer our tablet, but you're out and about, you're waiting at the doctor's office, you're doing whatever where you read five, 10 minutes at a time, you can go on your phone, it syncs mm -hmm. right there. So oysterbooks.com, book right. It's 10 bucks a month for unlimited eBooks, but your first month trial is free for 30 days. And I think if you go into it with the spirit of sort of discovery and play, um, you're really going to find it to be as much of a value as like Rebecca and I have found it to be really awesome. And we're super excited to have them as a sponsor and go try Oyster. Yeah. And if you do, uh, let us know and yeah. let us know what you're reading while you're there. And uh, you can find and follow both of us. And It's a great uh, way to we'll try share. genres you're not usually around. Like I read, for example, when I first tried Oyster, some of these like kind of poppy business books that I avoid or wouldn't buy. But, you know, I, I tried a few and a couple I didn't like, but a couple I really found interesting. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. that's a really nice um, salutary effect. My favorite romance writer, Sarah McLean, has a bunch of her books uh, in Oyster because she's published by Avon, which is HarperCollins romance mm -hmm. imprint. So if you want to try some romance, you're a little skeptical, you don't want to spend your dollars specifically on a romance title, search for Sarah McLean uh, in Oyster and give it a shot. Yeah. So for the price of basically one paperback a month, you got a hundred thousand at your disposal. Tough. Man, that, that's a pretty good line. Future, that's not a bad future. line. They should, they, we gave that one. We should have charged them for that one. <laughs> future feels good, Jeff. Future feels good. All right, let's get to the let's stories. Oh, we have to go such a downer now. I feel this <laughs> feeling so good after that. Um, well, we've talked in one of our. I, th I think we both share uh, an interest and concern and desire to see diversity in books. Um, change for the better, which means to, to more accurately reflect the makeup of um, society and culture mm -hmm. as a whole, at least in these beloved United States of ours, which we know something about. And a study um, by the Library of the School of Education at, what school is this? The University Wisconsin. of Wisconsin-Madison. The University Madison. of Wisconsin-Madison um, did a study of children's books and they broke it down by the number of books by people of color and then books about people of color, children's books published in the United States over the last couple of years. And Collected by the Children's Book Center, the Cooperative Children's Book Center. Yes, right. And the numbers are... They're so bad. Just, it would be hard to find, I was thinking about this, a more depressing publishing number. Yeah. I mean, what... So... Um, in 1993, there were about 5,000 children's books published. Um, the CCBC, which did the study, received about 3,200 of them. So as a data set, that's pretty good, unless there's, mm -hmm. some, there's some horrible bias in what they're getting. Um, of those, 
67 were by black people, um, which you don't have to be good at math to know that sucks. And 93 were about black people. 18, 18 total, not percent, mm-hmm. were about uh, American Indians. Oh, these are the 2013 numbers. Yeah, 2013. This was last year. Yeah. Last year. Uh, yeah, this is not 19. Uh, I don't even know what. Year I think you said least. 1993. I did. Well, yeah. it's always 1993 in my head. I'm always 15. I mean, you've seen my Spotify yeah, playlists. Right. Asian Pacific, uh, Asian Pacifics, Asian Pacific Americans, 90 by 69 about, and Latinos, 48 by 57 about. So the so, moral of the story being, if you're not white, yeah, you're going to have a hard time seeing yourself in children's books, finding children's books that look like you. So there were a grand total out of 3,200 books received. There were a grand total of 80, like less than 200 yeah. um, that were by or about people of color, which, and you don't even have to know exactly what the American demographics are to know that um, that's super bad. Uh, the number of it's Americans super. who are white is, hovers around, it's around uh, in the low to mid 70% mm-hmm. so over the last couple of years. Um, I'm really happy. Where do you want to go with this? Well, I'm thinking, I've been thinking this week, looking at this, that I'm really glad to actually see the numbers. It's much um, worse than I thought. Like I thought it would be bad. Yeah. But it's, it's worse than I thought. And this buy and about number, like we, we've talked about the bestsellers list, right? About the really mm-hmm. bad representation of people of color on the New York Times bestsellers list and how if you think about publishing and you know how the system works at all, it's not just that like white people are writing better books that get sold more. There are so many other, uh, so many factors that actually do affect it and that that's not the thing that affects it. So it's nice to see like that this is true, that very few books by people of color are being published. So fewer of them are available, mm-hmm. meaning that, you know, fewer are available, fewer have a shot at getting bought, fewer have a shot at um, being reviewed and then at becoming bestsellers. It's not about the quality. And we have, and we've been saying that, but there are, now there are numbers to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and there might be, uh, I'm thinking about like when we talk about diversity in literature, the responses people put on our Facebook page that make us want to slap them with the band hammer. <laughs> right. Um, things White's like, a well, color too. White, well, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the classic. That's favorite. Uh, but also people say like, well, maybe uh, black people are just writing fewer books and trying to get fewer books published, which at this point in the system, that might be the case if people of color have learned that publishing is biased right. against yes. them. You can't really fault someone for thinking, I have no shot at getting this done because 67 books out of 3,200 Right. It's like last the casino. Year. Like if, if, <laughs> the, best thing, the, best, the best way to win at roulette is not to play roulette because the odds of winning are bad. Yeah, and we talked about this some when we were looking at the Vita numbers, too, of people saying, well, women just don't submit to these journals as much. Well, if you're, if what you have learned is that these journals don't publish women, right? <laughs> then what's the motivation there? So this is, uh, these are hard numbers that really do show us that publishing is doing a terrible job it's, representing I, um, people who are not white. That reminds me, I heard a really good uh, interview that Bill Simmons of ESPN did with Lena Dunham on, their, on his podcast this mm. week. Uh, it's from a few weeks ago. And she was, they were talking about the dearth of female showrunners on TV mm-hmm. shows. And they, they could name basically all of them uh, in a few, in like uh, on one hand. 
and she made the point, and, and Simmons asked her, like, why do you think there aren't as many? Um, and because he said he, he's Jimmy Kimmel, Kimmel's cousin, and they said they have trouble finding female comedy writers, not for lack of trying. And she said, well, if you see that there's only like a handful in the whole industry, it takes a particularly a t- particular kind of personality to say, hey, there's no room for me there, but I'm going to try anyway. Right. Um, and that may be irrational as much. The logical thing would be not to try, right? Mm-hmm. If it I doesn't think, seem like I there's room so. for you. I read a similar interview with Mindy Kaling yeah. this week about um, the Mindy Project, where you know Mindy Kaling is a uh, young Indian woman who's writing and running her own major network sitcom, right. and she's the only young Indian woman to be in that position. And um, she sort of, you know, lost it, and I think justifiably so, in an interview this week when someone asked her why there weren't more. Um, people of color and women of color on her show. And she was like, <laughs> she was like, I'm doing better than anybody else. <laughs> right. Exactly. Is. I'm the only woman who's come this far. And, and she talked also about the, uh, the adversity that you face when you look at an industry that does not actively represent and advocate for good work by people who have the same background that you have. And you do have to be, I guess, you know, like the Dunham interview, like a little bit insane yeah. and overconfident about like, there's no space for me here, but I'm going to push in and do it anyway. And, um, and Dunham knows too, she's like 25 mm-hmm. and she's, you know, written award-winning movies and she's got this, uh, critically acclaimed show on HBO and she got a multi-million dollar book deal last year. Like this is, this is a young woman who knows how to break into an industry where there's not room for right. her. Um, so the, the logical thing would be to not try. Yeah, I, it seems like a perfectly reasonable uh, situation to me. So there's no good solution to this. I, that's kind of what I was trying to say. It's turtles mm-hmm. all the way down. Where yeah. The, somehow you have to change the perception uh, for people to write books. I mean, if you look at literary fiction, I'd, I'd like to see these numbers for literary fiction. My mm. sense is, is it's better, but it's not awesome. But yeah. there's also 150 years of precedent for um, black people in America writing. So mm-hmm. you have, I mean, Alice Walker wrote about it in Search of Her Mother's Garden. She talked about right. founding Zora Neale Hurston's unmarked grave and like using that as inspiration because like someone has done it. So maybe I can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tony um, Morrison talks about it in um, What Moves in the Margin. Yeah. So these things matter. And sometimes it doesn't, it's not going to take um, the number of books by black people to exactly match the number of black people in America for the tide to change. Mm-hmm. Um, it will just be enough where people, there's some people that are visible that will get other people interested to say, I could do that because look, someone else has. Yeah. Um, and I think it takes publishers, you know, going out and if, if you're not getting submissions um, from yeah, people of color, because like, at this point it's, it's really logical not to try, then you then it's your job as an editor or a publisher to go out and find talented people of color who are writing because there are many of them and ask them to write you a children's book. Yeah, try Make the plat. You have to make the platform. Um, Yeah. So I have one other question about this. And this is because uh, I come at this because I do have two young kids, both Mm -hmm. under the age of three, and we read a lot of picture books. And um, they don't talk about here is how many of these books are actually about people. Does that mean... uh, because a lot of the books we read are about like animals and animate objects. So I wonder what percentage of this 3,200 is actually about 
to have people as the protagonists. Because um, easily half the books we read, there's it's a dog going to the library or something like that, or it's a the little blue truck in the big city. So that might be one way where that thirty maybe only um, two thirds of those are actually about humans uh, for children's books. So I, that's just one thing I, I threw in as a confounding factor uh, in the overall stat. Because I, I would guess that all thirty two hundred aren't about people. So the percentage of books about African Americans would be higher if only half of these say are about people. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. I think the numbers would still be depressing. They oh, would sure, sure. Slightly sure. less depressing. Um, like if... Maybe it would move from mortifying to just really, really bad. I don't know. Yeah. So... Uh, I mean, I think it's a good question. I'm glad that you brought up the confounding factor. And I, I do wonder, I wonder if anybody has that number, like the number of children's books that are about people characters versus bunny rabbits and trains and farm animals and uh, brave toasters. Right. So I'm, you know, I'm not trying to make these numbers go away, I, but as I like to do, even with numbers that I sort of intuitively feel like are correct, um, just want to investigate them a little more. Okay. Oh, and I'd like to hear from listeners. If you know great children's books that are about yes. people of color, um, shout us out, podcast.bookriot.com, yeah, or hit us up on show. Twitter, and we'll, we site. will round those up. And if you are looking for a good resource, um, we'll just do a quick shout out to a, a Tumblr that I just came across this week called Diversity NYA. It's diversitynya.tumblr.com, and it's about um, young adult books that feature um, people of color and minorities um, of all kinds. And they do great work. There are tons of book recommendations here. So um, if you have been looking at your reading and realizing that you need um, some more diversity or that you want uh, to understand uh, many more kinds of experience in people's writing, then I would try diversityya.tumblr.com. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay. Um, let's go a little more philosophical here. Tim Parks wrote in the New York Review of Books blog this week, a post called Where I'm Reading From. Uh, and I'm just going to read a quick um, excerpt of it because it uh, summarizes what he's trying to do. Um, I've been thinking how useful it might be if all of us professionals, and that means he means professional book critics, were to put on record, perhaps on some de dedicated website, a brief account of how we came to hold the views we do on books, or, how, or at least how we think we came to hold them. If each of us stated where we were coming from, perhaps some light could be thrown on our disagreements. And then he goes on to actually do hmm. that, talk about his reading history um, and what he thinks about books and his own experience and what he likes and everything like that. Uh, I thought this was interesting for several reasons. The first is the first is that an overt acknowledgement um, in a major influential book review about the subjectivity of reviews, mm -hmm. which we all know, right? I mean, that's something everyone, very few people are going to argue that there's a projective book reviews and we could get into that, but I'm going to say most, most people who want to listen to this show know that already, but it still kind of floats out there that if something gets a good review in the New York review of books or the New York times or Washington post that like that is somehow indicative of a book's quote unquote quality, mm -hmm. not just that particular reader's response to that book's quality. So even though we know it, the world doesn't behave 
as if we all know it together, if that makes sense. Right, and, and the world often conflates the one person's opinion yes. in the New York Times or the New York Review of Books or wherever with the stamp of approval from the whole, right. uh, the whole like giant organization. We uh, so much, so often we hear like, and the New York Times gave this a five star review or or you know whatever, but like the New York Times didn't do diddly. Right, <laughs> <laughs> one person read the book and had thoughts on it, and particularly old school critics um, do like to present this like objective. Like I read this objectively to measure its quality. Um, but as readers, you're right. We all sense and feel that, of course, we bring our own stuff to what we're reading. We bring all of our life experiences and our biases and um, our preferences to the books that we read. And uh, whether you're getting paid by a fancy publication to share your experience with the book and your perspective on it, or you're just writing about it and you're good reads account um we're doing the same things in our right. evaluation of what books do and and so that's the first thing this the acknowledgement and then the, the the second thing is that if somehow we put our subjectivity on display that that would be helpful hmm. which i you know i'm not i don't think it's hurtful but i don't know that it's helpful i think this is like this is what it looks like when the old school recognizes that there's some value in the new way of doing things, mm, but they mm -hmm. can't quite figure out how to do the new thing the right way. Like, um, I don't think a, a dedicated website where critics <laughs> post about where they got their reading biases <laughs> right. is going to do anything but be just another like elitist literary circle jerk. Um, but weaving in information about your subjectivity and your biases into the ways that you write about books is useful. Right. Um, or like, and like critics being active on Twitter would be useful. Like refer to where your bias came from while you're writing about the book, um, share information about, you know, your personality and the stuff that you're into on your social networks. And then the people who follow your work have a sense of who you are. Like, I've been less than uninterested in professional Me too. criticism Couldn't for agree a long, more. yeah, for yep. a long time, um, and a, a large part of that, um, beyond just being totally bored with the snobbery, is that like I don't really know anything about what it means if Michiko Kakutani gives a book an A plus review, unless I know something about her and um, uh, at least about the ways that she has reviewed other books and where she's come down. So I can draw some kind of line in my head between her taste and my taste yeah. and whether a book that she reviews well is a book that I will enjoy. And, and so that's the reason that I'm a blogger instead. <laughs> because, right. I mean, because, that's kind of where I was going to, or wanted to go to mm -hmm. some degree is like really what this guy wants is for critics and readers, I guess, to have some kind of uh, ability to know where their intersections of tastes and experiences are so that you can, I guess, calibrate your response to a particular review or a particular book mm -hmm. accordingly, right? Like, it'd be kind of like a, like an algorithm that matches you with your uh, most similar mainstream book critic, right? Right. Like, if, uh, if uh, Janet Maslin reviews a book, um, then... Uh, I, some, some algorithm would say there's a 90% chance that I will feel similarly about it, which, I mean, it's sort of an impossible task. I, I think ultimately what this kind of path would do is atomize book reviewing into individual reviewers rather than 
mm-hmm. people operating under the shield of some other ban, uh, you know, the shield of some other publication, which I think would be all to the good. I right? think so too. To divorce and- Kakutani from the Times, and mm-hmm. that's really just Kakutani's review. Right. And that can get whatever kinds of aura of um, import that we want to confer on it, but it's not just it's not the um, the aura of the uh, multi-hundred million dollar business that's behind the New York Times. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thinking first of a great, I think what is a good example from a different form of media is um, the New Yorker's TV reviewer, Emily Nussbaum, right. um, whom we both follow on Twitter and follow her work and writing. And you get lots of her on her Twitter feed, but you also get lots of her in her reviews of the shows that she's watching and issuing professional opinions about for the New Yorker. Um, and it, it does become clearer when you read those pieces. This is not the New Yorker's opinion on Lena Dunham's girls. <laughs> This is Emily Nussbaum, who is a feminist, who's and in her hired 40s. hired by The New Yorker and paid dollars right, to write who, about TV. Right, who has her very individual set of experiences and tastes and preferences. And I think uh, it would make – this might be a way to make professional uh, literary criticism less irrelevant. Um <laughs> Boy, that was like, that's a that's a ringing endorsement. How yeah. you like that? Right. Uh, by giving because readers have come to it. Like my experience, if we're putting our biases out there, is that this is a thing that readers already expect because the internet has leveled the playing field and created ways for you know average Joe readers to be in touch with authors, to be in touch with book reviewers, to be in touch with the bloggers whose opinions they follow. And and so if you want to stay relevant, this is a thing that you do um, because your readers want to know some things about you. They want to be able to draw that line between what they like and what you like. And and maybe it's a flip. Maybe Janet Maslin hates a book and that's a signal to you that you're going to love it. <laughs> or know, if she um, hates it for a specific reason, right. it might be that that's a kind of something yeah, that those, you look those, for. Those things, um, they do work that way. I have uh, a dear friend who is a bookseller who will go unnamed and one of her coworkers and she, they're equally brilliant women, uh, but they have very different taste in books. And it basically is that situation when mm. one of them loves the book, it's a signal that the other one's going to hate it. And when one hates it, it's a signal that the other one's going to love it. And like, that's how they recommend books to each other. It's like, this really didn't work for me and you're going to totally love it. Uh, And that would be useful in in criticism. Um, I don't know that it could make me pay attention more. No, it can't. You're right. I agree with that. And it also suffers from this problem of if I can just get on top of my subjectivity, then it'll be objective. There's that, Mm -hmm. that kind of move that's like, and he even sort of admits it in a, in a parenthetical there when he says, if we can even identify our own subjectivity. I'm like, there you go. Right. Like, you may not even know the source. In fact, I would, I would guess that most of the time you don't know what the origin of some uh, particular element of your literary or cultural taste is. Mm-hmm. In fact, you probably are more likely to misdiagnose uh, than you are to, to get it correctly. Um, so anyway, I, that's, I thought that was worth thinking about to some degree. Um, all right, let's do ebooks just for a second. A couple of things I, I saw this week about ebooks. Um, mm-hmm. I'm personally quite interested in the future of ebooks and print and their relationship to each other. And this is a prediction in the bookseller, which is a, a large UK based um, book, book publishing. Um, I guess, website and magazine. And uh, this says their prediction that ebooks will become around 35% of the British book market in the next two years, but thereafter will grow only very slowly. Hmm. So, I, you know, it seems to me that the, con- the conventional thinking is we're going to see a couple more years of 
robust ebook growth, and then it's going to quiet down. I really want to know what only very slowly means. Like 35%, well, becoming 35% of the market. Yeah. Is pretty good. Um, you can't be in fast early growth forever. No. Well, I think what they mean is it'll probably grow at about the same level of, say, population or inflation mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. to that. So I don't know their methodology. I think this is just a prognostication. But I do think it represents the common current thinking, don't you? Of like from what we're hearing people say about ebooks, like it's going to yes. grow for a little while longer, and then after that, it's just going to kind of, you know. Not flatline, but be on a very more, a much more predictive inflationary growth curve. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't have anything to say about that. I disagree, sort of intuitively, but I don't have any evidence for it, so I'll leave that there. Yeah, I, I think that that's a correct reading of it. Um, and a book that that we both have read and are familiar with for business growth um, is called Crossing the Chasm, yeah. ab- about the, like the curve that um, occurs with people adopting new things. And if you think about the normal curve, that like the first skinny tail on the left side of the curve is the early adopters, and then you move into the like juicy fat middle of that normal curve. And I think that's what we're starting to see is like y- you, we are well past the point where it's just early adopters reading ebooks and. And once that juicy fat middle of the bell curve gets filled up where like, you know, the average person who's going to try ebooks has tried them. And the only people left are the ones who are like the late, late, late adopters of things. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's going to slow down because there are fewer people available to convert. Yeah. And it's the thing that's going to be interesting is that ebooks are so young that it could be that we're actually seeing resistance to ebooks um, by the people who tend to buy the most books, which we know are older um, mm-hmm. folks. So it could be that there's maybe like a, a, a friction point, and then once that friction point goes away, I'm saying 10, 15, 20 years down the line, then it could grow even a little bit faster. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say, but I thought I would put that in there because that's what their conventional wisdom says to be. Another confounding factor of the slowing of growth <laughs> is this next story um, on Quartz, which is a, a new um, website that I've been reading recently. It's, it's QZ.com if you're interested. And the link to this will be in the show notes. Mm-hmm. This, was, this one is a study about the availability of um, e-books, um, uh, digital versions for books that were published in the middle of the 20th century. Things before 1923, you can get almost everything in ebook because guess what's out of copyright and doesn't cost anybody anything. And if they charge you 99 cents, they get even that. But this says for books published between uh, published after 1923, the picture's a lot different. Just 27% of the 167 bookseller, bestsellers they studied that were published between 1923 and 1932 are available as ebooks. Huh. Um, and the reasons for this are simply complex. And by that, I mean, the simple reason is that the copyright and ownership status of a lot of books that were written in this time period, and then even after, well, the contracts and the rights don't have any provision for digital books in them. <laughs> so, they, they, you know, you just couldn't imagine you that couldn't future. imagine. So there's no, no one really has jurisdiction and someone doesn't want to publish one for fear of getting sued and um, in a lot of cases, the rights holders are are either dead or their heirs are not interested or they wouldn't actually move enough units individually to make mm-hmm. it worth doing a conversion. But in aggregate, it'd be a lo- it's a long tail that we're missing here. Sort of famously, uh, we've talked about this before, you can't get an e-book of To Kill a Mockingbird, right? right? Um, and that's, you know, it's a kind of a 
it's an idiosyncratic case, but it's a representative one of all the complications that can happen after the fact. So this is another piece of that ebooks growing only slowly is that there's sort of an artificial limit on the number of ebooks available. Like you have to buy a print version of um, a lot of the books mm-hmm. um, printed really, I mean, up until like the last 10 years. You go older than 10 years and it's re- it's a real mm-hmm. dicey situation. It, it really is. Like well, one of the things that I do at Book Riot is insert affiliate links to titles yeah. in the posts that we publish. And at least once a week, there's something that I go looking for. And I'm like, what? There's not an ebook version yeah. of this? And it is a lot of the stuff like from the even like mid 80s to early 90s mm-hmm. um, has not been ebook published yet it just sort of got lost like yep. um i i think that what happened was say like john irving um had a bunch of books out in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s but continues to publish in the 21st century and so when his 21st century books came out there were ebook provisions and people went in his publishers went into the backlist yeah. and to in order to support the new books they made the backlist available digitally as well. Um, but then you've got like James Salter, who's one of our mm-hmm. favorites, um, who's also published by a, a major publishing house. And uh, his backlist is available through Open Road Media, which is sort of an independent, separate arm, not related to Random House, which published um, which published him initially. Yeah. There's all sorts of like weird and interesting. And I think you're right. It's uh, simply complex. <laughs> right. Uh, and, you know, and even those names that you rattled off, that's not really the, the tier we're ta- that it had the most problems. It's like the tier two's down, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the mid-list of 1970, for example. Yeah. Like names you and I may not know, or maybe one of us would know, but we couldn't rattle off and had expect a lot of your audience to know. Because though for Salter, even Salter, who's not as well known as, as we think maybe he should be, there's still quite a bit of demand there. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, you can get some return on digitizing and creating a new digital copyright and all of those things. Um, but as we know in books, though, the tale is super long. Like most of the books people buy, frankly, are not current bestsellers. They're everything else that's ever been yeah. published before. So if you take a lot of those out of the available ebook pool, I think it's reasonable to expect that that's why you're going to see some weight on the growth prospects of ebooks because that long tail mm-hmm. isn't as long uh, as it is for print. So uh, I thought that w- those were two stories worth putting together. Interesting All stuff. Right. We got a lot of... We got a lot We've, of... Individual title news. Let's yeah. you start. Where you want to start with this? Let's go through all these. But where you okay. want to start here? I want to start with the thing that rings a whole bunch of my personal. Bells uh, I, I see your little cursor in the in the yeah. uh, in the you're document. You're cheating. You're cheating. No, I know. Uh, Meg Wallitzer, who is an author that I love. Uh, she writes wonderful, smart fiction, uh, and her latest novel, The Interestings, came out last year and was one of my very favorite books of the year. She uh, just announced yesterday that she is publishing a young adult novel. called called, I think, Beljar is the pronunciation, B-E-L-Z-H-A-R, and it is a play on Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. Mm. Um, I just don't know that this could be any more in my <laughs> wheelhouse. It's an author you love writing about something you're very interested in, but also connected to a very influential book. Like that's kind of the, that's the, the triple crown right there. Right. And Wallitzer has done other interesting literary sort of takeoffs. Um, her book, I think it was in 2012, the uncoupling was a takeoff of the Lysistrata, um, which is a classic Greek play. Um, so she is, she is very literate and very literary, uh, and, but writes wonderfully accessible, not snobby, not elitist, uh, literary fiction. 
fiction. And I'm really excited that she's going to write YA. I'm also super jealous of today's teenagers that um, Meg Wallitzer is writing a book that's geared towards them. That won't stop me <laughs> from reading it. But like, why? Why did this not happen when I was 13? <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, I'm going next. And okay. this is a book. Um, this is something I heard existed. One, one of my uh, my middle English teachers in grad school was a both Beowulf and Tolkien, Tolkien, excuse me, fanatic. And he said there is, there was a translation of Beowulf by Tolkien. And apparently the, his estate has finally got their ducks in a row to publish his translation of Beowulf, um, which if you know anything about him, he was a scholar of uh, ancient languages and mythologies. And this is one of the foundational texts um, and I think it'll be interesting to see what he does with, with Beowulf. Like yeah. a lot of the Middle English that he studied as an academic, w you know, were the basis for a lot of the languages he made up um, in Lord of the Rings and mm -hmm. otherwise. Uh, it's going to be hard to, to beat Seamus Haney's um, Beowulf translation so that came hard. out. So hard. But you know what? If you're going to draft someone to do it, you'd probably pick J.R.R. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't say when this is coming out. I'm guessing it's going to move with the normal glacial speed of... Um, <laughs> Traditional publishing plus sort of rights problems and estate issues. Yeah, I don't um, think there's any real demand for rushing this thing to print. Yeah, it's, it's, it's 90 years old, the translation of a uh, hundreds of years old um, text. But uh, that will be an interesting one to watch. You know um, what would be awesome? I know a lot they... of awesome things, but I don't know what you're thinking of. <laughs> You're supposed to guess. Oh, oh okay. uh, no, no, no! I'm kidding. No, read my mind, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, is if this came out with annotations by a Tolkien scholar that mm. could tie his Beowulf work to Tolkien's work? Yeah, because he did this translation when he was a much younger man than he was when he wrote Lord of the Rings. So it's all before that stuff. But like, if this lives in his literary unconscious, it has to. I mean, it really, it really. Has then to. it would be really cool to see notes of someone who's a Tolkien scholar who I guess also understands Beowulf well if that person exists, uh, to be like, well, and you can see, you know, the influence of this part shows up in the Lord of the Rings here. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be nerdalicious. All right. Um, so speaking of another uh, institution that's being resuscitated, Anne Rice mm. is coming out with a new um, Lestat novel. So that's the famous uh, main character of... Uh, the Vampire Chronicles, um, the most famous of the, which is Interview with the Vampire. Mm -hmm. And let's see, I don't know when it says it's coming, but she's working on it. And I think it is, it's going to be called The Prince Lestat. And it's going to be about um, what he's been up to since the last uh, book he appeared in. That's my understanding. This is not one I keep up with, I have to admit. So I don't know the storyline very well. I saw the movie Interview with a Vampire a long time ago with Tom Cruise as Lestat. Um, but I, from what I saw, Anne Rice fans were super excited about this. Um, so we're going to see this. Looks like the end of the uh, no, mid middle of next year. Ah, all right, for twenty fifteen. So yeah, that'll be. I haven't read any of those, but I did rewatch Interview with the Vampire a couple of months ago. Oh, does it hold up? 
I, I, it's been forever like, since so I've seen it. It's so campy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which I didn't quite remember about it. I'm not, also maybe not sure that I knew what camp was the first time that I watched that, <laughs> yeah. that when it when it first came out. But it was it was fun. It was fun to rewatch it. And th- that series is one that's been on my, like, maybe I'll catch up with this during summer vacation at some point. Yeah, I like the frame of that book. I mean, that the interview mm-hmm. and you yeah. know, there's this guy who's sort of entering into it. It is a cool it. frame story. Cool frame. Uh, so Neil, pick one, pick one more big book news story. Uh, the woman herself, Oprah, uh, yes, the big O, uh, the big O has an essay collection coming out, um, I believe, in September from Flatiron Books, which is a new nonfiction imprint of Macmillan uh, called What I Know for Sure. Uh, and these are essays um, that are basically a compilation of columns that she's written for O, which is the Oprah magazine. But she's, you know, doing what you do when you write an essay collection and polishing right. things up and adding to them. Um, and also, actually, the piece of this that I'm the most interested in is not even about Oprah, but Flat. Iron Books, which is this new Macmillan that's imprint. What, that's quite a get for a new little imprint. Boy. Right. They are also publishing uh, our friend Maris Kreisman's Slaughterhouse oh, 90210. Right. Yes. Book. And if you don't know Slaughterhouse 90210, you should go find it on Tumblr. Maris brilliantly pairs up um, screenshots from television with literary quotes. And it's just spot on and perfect. She's been doing it for five years. They just had a party uh, this week celebrating the fifth anniversary of Slaughterhouse 90. 210. Um, it's going to be a great book. Um, so now uh, we can say that uh, we have a friend who is published on the same imprint, imprint with Oprah. Oprah, Oprah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> um, speaking of pretty cool things as a last sort of book deal news, mm-hmm. um, the same production company that uh, is doing the Hunger Games series is has optioned The Goldfinch ah. by Donna Tartt. Um, and I don't know much about Hollywood, but I know one thing, and that is that a, a studio or a production house optioning something doesn't mean much of anything except that they might turn it into a movie. And they you, don't want anyone else to beat And they don't to. want anyone else to beat him to it. Though for this book, I would guess the option rights are relatively expensive, so you have to be, there's a little more of a chance than normal mm. that it will be made into a movie. I think it would be an interesting movie. Um, it's a long book, and it's a book of ideas which can be difficult to turn into a good movie sometime. Um, I still want the secret history rather than this book yes. as movie form. I think it's much more conducive to it. But that is a side issue <laughs> that I do not want to spend the next seven hours regaling you with all of our reasons <laughs> that I'm sure we agree upon yeah. why we want to see the secret history. Namely so that we have something other than the Dead Poets Society to watch. I like know, I know. Fall, crisp yeah, fall. mornings when we feel like crying. Yeah. Um, fall t- fall uh, literary studies and uh, death um, all wrapped up into one there. All right. Let's do another sponsor. Audible's back. All right. We want to thank Audible for its support of the Book Riot podcast. Audible, if you don't know, you should know, is the leading provider of downloadable audiobooks. And we have a special offer just for our listeners. I'm going to tell you about that in just a second, tell you more about Audible. But if you go to Book Riot, uh, excuse me, audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot, you can get a free trial that includes a free audiobook uh, of your choice. And you've got a plenty to choose from. They have over 150,000 books covering every genre you could reasonably hope to have. Like literally everything. Yeah. And you can listen to virtually, you can listen to your free audiobook on really any device. If it's something that you can like sync to your computer now, you can listen to Audible, you know, iPad, iPhone on your computer, PC, Kindle, even a tablet, MP3 player, over 500 devices are supported. So 
if you've got a device, it's probably going to work. You get the you get the try it out, but they also ask us to um, suggest some titles. So I think we both have a couple. Yeah. I just started listening to The Signal and Noise by Nate Silver of 538, which their brand new website launched this week. And it's about um, how hard it is to make predictions about complicated things. Uh, Silver famously cor- uh, per- correctly predicted the last presidential race in 49 to 50 states, which is pretty darn good, as it turns out. <laughs> He's um, a wizard. And he talks about, it's very non-mathy. So that can be good or bad, depending on your um, predilection. But I think for most of us to hear in prose kind of the principles that he is thinking about. I, I'm through about the first half, and he's talking about why it's so hard to make good predictions. Mm-hmm. And I'm increasingly interested in making predictions of a certain sort. Um, and I found it really, really interesting. It's very approachable. It's a good listen um, because he he uses case studies as a way of uh, illuminating broader patterns. Um, the other thing I read listening, uh, I listened to recently um, through Audible was "The Hard Thing About Hard Things" by um, Andy Borowitz, who was a CEO of a giant um, web services company in the early days of the internet. He worked at Netscape and then. LoudCloud and then Opsware, and now he runs a giant venture capital fund with Mark Anderson. Um, and he talked about basically how to run a startup, the pitfalls of leading one, um, and basically, you know, how to run a business in a new economy. It's based on his own blog. The first part of it is a sort of rejiggered blog post, but the second part about how to be a good CEO and how to be a good leader. Um, and, and the, the crux of the book is that most leadership books are crappy because they only reverse engineer from good outcomes mm. the way to make good decisions. And he says, really, the, the hardest decisions all of us have to make are going to be in those places where there is no roadmap for a decision. Um, and that's that you're going to have to keep some things in mind. And he outlines what those things are and gives you some sort of advice on how to make kinds of decisions, not the kinds of decisions you should make all the time, but to know, you know, that part of the, the, the book is aptly titled, the hard thing is that the hard things are hard <laughs> and no amount of sort of punditry or consultant book or four hour work week or whatever is going to help you when things really hit the fan and become the most difficult. So those are my two uh, businessy nonfiction kind of books and I enjoyed them a lot. Yeah, I'm right there with you with um, CEO decision yeah. makers. I've just started listening to the Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon. I want to listen to that too. By Brad Stone. It's a meaty one. It's like 12 hours long almost. Um, but Brad Stone undertook like 300 interviews, a dozen or so of which were with Jeff Bezos, whose name I have finally learned how to pronounce correctly. <laughs> uh, and it's about how Amazon began, like it opens with a story from Bezos's childhood, um, but what his background is, how this company began, um, what their philosophy is, and then up, you know, I, I assume we will make it up to a nearly present day and what they're gunning for in the future. I'm still in the early hours of it, but I'm, I'm really fascinated. You know, you uh, cannot swing a cat on the literary internet without running into every day some opinion about Amazon, some new news mm-hmm. from something that Amazon is doing, an interview with Bezos, a <clears throat> 
excuse me, a takedown, like hate piece of Bezos. There's, <laughs> there's just so much. And so it's really fascinating to read or to hear uh, a book written by someone who spent a lot of time and many years getting very close to the company and understanding why it functions. And it's one of, I'm not usually a biography fan. Me either, um, I have to admit. Yeah, I'm the same way. But it's really interesting getting Stone's perspective and voice here you can hear like a little bit of criticism in the way that he phrases uh, some things you can hear uh maybe some dubiousness <laughs> at points but also admiration for um you know how intelligent bezos can be um mixed feelings about his ruthlessness there's there's just a lot of great stuff and i think it's important especially if you're in the industry and uh, you are called upon to opine about amazon it's good to know of what you speak yeah. uh, so i'm finding it really useful and and fascinating yeah i, I want to get to that one eventually too all right let's talk about a couple of new books and then we'll get out of here all right new this week we're sort of in a weird like Couple, every couple of weeks, there's a boom, and then there's like a quiet thing in the spring. I think April is really when it starts to get super yeah, exciting yeah. again. But this week, we've got The Bohemians, Mark Twain, and the San Francisco Writers Who Reinvented American Literature uh, by Ben Tarnoff. So if you're into the history of American literature. I do not it's know from, I haven't heard of this book coming out yet. Tell me about this. Uh, it's uh, the unforgettable story of the birth of modern America and the Western writers who gave voice to its emerging identity. Mm -hmm. uh, so it starts in the 1860s in San Francisco. The gold rush is over. The Civil War is threatening to start. And there are a group, there's a group of young writers uh, who call themselves the Bohemians, um, the chief of which is Mark Twain in San Francisco, who are, uh, what does it say, uh, drunk on champagne oysters and the city's intoxicating energy. <laughs> I haven't read this yet. Um, our mm. colleague, Rachel Cordesco, uh, included it in her five books to look for in March yeah, nice. piece for Book Riot. It's a good and find. It, it does look fascinating, um, if you're, especially if you're you know, into literary history. That's a literary scene I don't know much about, I have to admit, San Francisco in the 1860s. Yeah, I've, I've never really thought about that there i think i mean there's tons of books about you know hemingway and the expats yeah seriously um so it feels like this is a or new the scene. beats or the the romantics um, right in american lit especially a new scene that the other one is a non another non-fiction pick uh, this week called the thing with feathers the surprising lives of birds and what they reveal about being human uh, it's by noah striker and it's a look at um it's a look at birds and their connection to humanity, which might sound strange, but I've read about half of this one so far, and I really love it. Um, last year, I fell for When Women Were Birds by Terry Tempest Williams, <laughs> and then went into her backlist, um, Refuge, which uh, is about... Uh, like each chapter of refuge presents a different kind of bird and like meditations on that bird and how her life is connected to which uh, what she has experienced with these birds which also i'm doing a terrible job pitching but is a really beautiful book i think you've got a genre kryptonite about birds in you I, that's Maybe what i'm I that's do. what i'm hearing right here well, I, I don't birds know of america with lori moore you got no, the goldfinch the sparrow oh i'm gonna roll <laughs> You have just diagnosed a thing. I, that's right. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, it felt more like going down the rabbit hole, like following from. Yeah, th there's just there's birds are only sort of part of the story, and when women were birds, it's their peripheral, and mm -hmm. then refuge is like, 
mostly about birds and her <laughs> life is peripheral. And then this popped up in my mailbox a couple of months ago. And I was like, oh, look, another thing about birds and humans and how humans interact with birds and what birds tell us about humans. And the thing and, with feathers, I assume it's taken from that uh, famous Emily Dickinson uh, mm-hmm. poem, um, the thing with feathers that purchase in the yes. soul. Uh, cool. That's, you know, yeah, it's cool. It has a cool cover. Too. I believe it. Like in any, I mean, we've kind of fallen out, haven't we? Those micro history trend, like salt and cod. And mm-hmm. I feel like that has waned a little bit. Um, do, do you feel the same way? Uh, like that single well, subject. Yeah. Like the unusual history of this everyday thing. Like, I don't know. It feels like of, that was like know. hot. And then I don't, feel like I hear about it. It was hot. I don't know. I read a great one last year called Consider the Fork. That was like the cultural history of silverware. Maybe we're just running out of stuff. Like we've written about all the stuff you have in your house. Oh, birds. Birds are left. But I (laughs) I mean, it makes sense that uh, that's one that we should think about. So that's The Thing with Feathers by Noah Stryker. And you Mm -hmm. will have links to the show notes, which you can always find at bookriot.com slash podcast. And you will... uh, see the list of the existing episodes there. We also should say, we're wrapping up here, we got a new site redesign on Book Riot this week. It's so um, pretty. That's really great, and we're really stoked about it. Um, I guess that's all I'll say. If you haven't visited the site recently, that's a really good reason to, to go check out what's going on there. As always, you can if you've got feedback for us, you can email us at podcast at bookriot.com. You can follow me on Twitter if you'd like. I'm at Reading Ape. You can follow Rebecca on Twitter. She's at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. As always, any reviews you'd like to be doing on iTunes especially are helpful, even just a rating if you don't want to make any of the clicking sounds on the keyboard. Um, That's really great, too. Uh, And we'll be back next week. Our friend Rita Mead, um, if you still haven't checked out the Dear Book Nerd podcast, you absolutely should. You can find it on iTunes. iTunes itself gave gave that show a shout-out this week on Twitter, and it was featured in New and Noteworthy recently. Um, and she, alas, will be more famous than our show before too long. But it's a really good show. Uh, her guest last time was Dan Wilbur, who is a comedian and former bookseller who runs the Better Book Titles. Um, is it a Tumblr? I don't know. Better if Book a... Titles was a Tumblr, and he is on a great podcast called Two Book Minimum. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, that's a good one to notice, too. So I think I told the people all the things they need to know. Did I forget I anything? I think so. Well, there's the one thing is that subscriptions are now open for our third quarterly box. That's right. Uh, so if you're new to the show or you've just been thinking about this, but you haven't pulled the trigger yet, you can go to quarterly.co slash products and you can find Book Riot there. And for 50 bucks once a quarter, you will get a box of books and bookish goodies that we love and think that you will love as well cool all right well we will talk to you next week rebecca and uh i'll talk to you later yeah have a good one all right bye